You are listening to a message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. For more information on City Church, or for additional resources, including service times, recommended readings, and additional audio, please visit citychurchpa.org. You may be seated. Good morning, City Church. For those of you who don't know me, which many of you probably, if you've been coming in the last 14 months, probably don't, I am Gus Bird. I am one of the elders here. Uh, I was absent for 13 months because I was mobilized. If you want to talk about where, we can talk about that later, but I'm also a chaplain in the National Guard. And uh, so this is my first sermon back, so praise God for that. Um, And I have the privilege of continuing our series on people of prayer. And this morning we will be going through Acts 8 and 9, where we will get to see, and I hope to show us, how... God grows his church through our prayers. Now, one thing I hope to show us, and I hope that we will see very clearly, is how God made us for connection, and how God, through his church, provides that connection. Now, if you are not familiar with connection. It's basically the relationships that we have with one another. There is two types of connection that we often look at in the Christian walk. Uh, You can look at it as the two planes, as Martin Luther would put it. There's a connection between us and God vertically, and there's a connection horizontally between each other. Now, many of us, it's not hard to convince you that we need a connection with God. God made us, and as our Father, we long to have that connection. What is often debated, especially these days, as our culture becomes more and more individualistic, is how much do we need one another? Now, if you need convincing of, of that God made us for connection. If you look in the beginning of Genesis, Adam was alone. God saw that he was alone, and he said that wasn't good. (laughs) Then he made Eve, and together they were very good. And one of the things that sin did, not only did it break the connection that we had vertically between us and God, but it also severed the connection between us and each other. Shame broke in. I didn't do it, it was her. It wasn't me, it was a snake. There was guilt for what they had done. They also made clothes because they were ashamed. If you need further proof, 
Um, they're, uh, I've heard their story multiple times, but I'm going to hopefully uh, enlighten you um, if you haven't heard the story. But there are numerous st stories of orphanages in uh, especially places like Russia decades ago where they would discover these orphanages where there was, they were so understaffed that all they could do to care for these infants is just feed them and lay them back down, just provide the basic necessities of sustenance. Just feed, change, lay them back down, no interaction. And what they found was that over the years with these with these infants not having that connection without without that those building blocks being established they the babies wouldn't even cry out anymore stories of walking into a room filled with cribs and not a whimper just silence because the babies had learned that nobody was going to respond to their cry they didn't have that basic connection that if I cried out that somebody was going to respond I'm hungry feed me and they get fed I want connection I'm sad I want to play, nothing. So they just stopped trying. And we've, in studies have been continuing to show that depending on how you were raised, basically the connection between you and your parents, that affects your, your life for the long run. And without intentionally working on it and being aware of how that is affecting you, it will literally change how you engage with others. If you want to nerd out, just look up attachment theory. That is this, so bottom line up front, we're made for connection. And today we're going to see in our walk through Acts, chapters 8 and 9, how God grows his church through prayer and also through connection. So, I don't know about you, but when I was given this, uh, when I look at this title, and I, that you know, we're given these this sermon series and we're assigned different ones. And so when I saw growth of the church through prayer, I'm like, okay, what do we mean growth is the first question I asked. And so, of course, if, if you're like me, the first thing we think of is, well, growth in number. We love to see numbers, right? I mean, we're often boil things down to numbers, right? When grandparents see their grandkids, they're like, hey, you're so big. And they're often looking at height or, you know, how much they've aged, you know, those numbers. And when we look in the mirror and we see that we've grown, we often associate it with a number, either 
inches or pounds, right? So is it numbers that God is concerning about when it comes to his church? And it is tempting to go that route because after all, numbers is the most obvious. And we even see it pointed out over and over again in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people, every day the Lord added to their number those that were being saved. Acts 5.14, believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 6.1, in those days as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by Hellenistic Jews against the Hebrew words against the Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. In Acts six seven, so the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and we even see it in our chapters today, in eight and nine, like in Acts. 9.31, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria, had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, increased in numbers. So, is it numbers? Seems like you could easily make that case. But what I want to caution against, I mean, it's clear that numbers is, is playing a part in this. But what's tempting is that we can often get caught up in simply numbers. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We love to see this room filled. We rejoice when we have, when we, you know, all these seats are filled, we have to pull out extra. It's amazing. But if we only fill seats for the sake of seats, there's a problem. There are many, many people that can fill a stadium without saving a soul. And I would argue that God is about more than just numbers as well. I mean, clearly... If he wanted to just fill heaven, he could do it, right? It'd be so much easier, especially if he'd want to do it without us. He could just do it. But there's something about using us, and there's something about his process that he uses that, that involves us that is very important to him. And we also see in Jesus' ministry that he was about more than just numbers. In John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and walks on water, which, let's be honest, if you want to fill a stadium, that's a good way to do it. He does those things, and many people followed him. And after he sees all these people and and he teaches some more. And in the, these people, these crowds that are following him say, this teaching is hard. How can we accept it? 
And Jesus doesn't lighten the teaching. He doesn't change it and make it easier, like, oh, this is too hard for you, please stay. No, he doubles down. In verse 66, we read that many disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So yeah, there were great crowds, there was a great number, but, but what were they there for? Now we can dig into that, but that's not the point of the sermon. If you want a more contemporary example, um, I used to be a A.W. Tozier fanboy. Um, and one of my favorite things that was said about him is when he became the pastor of the church, uh, Avenue Road in Toronto, they said that he grew the church from 1,100 to 800. <laughs> my, my reaction exactly. And if you've read anything of Tozer, he, he's known many times for saying, I'd rather have one spirit-filled believer than a, than a hundred that falsely professed. So it's got to be more than just numbers. And I think Peter and John knew this as well. In Acts 8, 14 through 15, that was read this morning, I'll read it again here. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not come down on any of them. So if they were just about numbers, they would have heard that they believed awesome, we'll stay here with our family, you know, our routines, it'd be great. Maybe they'd just go up there and just continue doing what they're doing up there, but no, they, they prayed because they saw there was still something missing there. They saw that it wasn't true growth yet. And so we see our first example this morning of how true growth comes through prayer. Now, I want to dig into this context a little bit more because I, I feel like this is a great example of, of how true growth is actually through connection. Right? We, we know vertical connection. And I'm not denying that. But I believe that God is very much interested in our horizontal connection as well. And that is through prayer how he continues to grow his church. So in Acts chapter 8, previously we see that Philip proclaims Christ to Samaria. And what we need to understand that will help us understand the context here is these just weren't a people group. There was history here between the Jews and Samarians. Now, most of the believers at that point were Jewish. So there's some context of why there's some conflict between Samarians and Jews, but to boil it down... It would not be okay 
for a Jew to eat food that even a Sumerian had even touched. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan. And a big part of that story that you might miss is if you fail to realize that Samaritans and Jews, of the, if, if you've missed the conflict that was there, the hatred that was there, the fact that an injured Jew was held by a Samaritan, that was a big deal. That's why it's a big deal that in John chapter 4 that Jesus went to a woman in Samaria. Beyond her being a woman and him being a male, the fact that he went out of his way, if you read John chapter 4, he purposely went through Samaria and engaged with a person there. The fact that she was a woman was just another added thing for that culture. There was, to say the least, tension. More than tension, hatred. So when the Samaritans begin to believe and be baptized, it would be understandable for them to feel like that that tension is still there. That hatred, those walls of hatred would still be there. Even if they forgave the Jews, how do they know that they were forgiven? And God, through his sovereign will, sends two leaders from the newly established church in Jerusalem, Peter and John. Now, what I love about how God works, I want us to dig into a little bit of why Peter and John. Now, there are a bunch of theories, but sticking to like a 10,000 foot overview this scripture is a bit controversial in some camps so we have to look at how and when if you look into how and when the Holy Spirit is given to believers there are two main camps and both use this scripture to justify their their point So what I want to look at is not necessarily how or when or why the Holy Spirit is delivered, but is this portion of scripture normal in how God works? Now, many theologians that are way smarter than me believe that this scripture points out is proof that this is an exception, not the norm. So God is doing something exceptional here, okay? And if you want me to dig a little more into that, just let me know, we'll put it in the podcast. But one of the arguments that this is exceptional is because, well, Luke wrote it down. If it was normal, why would you need to write it down and tell somebody about it, right? So one Luke writes it down. I also believe this is an exception 
because God wanted his leaders of his newly formed church to go to the Samaritans. We've already covered briefly the walls of hatred that were built by both sides between these two people groups. Also, Luke records for us in his gospel of John, sorry, in his gospel, sorry, all over my notes here. I'm used to using an iPad, so this is different. <laughs> also recorded in the gospel of John, who asks for permission to burn the Samaritans with fire from heaven? John. Luke 9, 51 through 56. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined a journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself in the, in, on the way they entered the village of, of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined a journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned to them and rebuked them, and they went on. We went to another village. So here you have two people groups who historically have these walls of hatred becoming believers, and how does God build a connection between them? He sends one of them who wanted to kill them not more than a few years earlier. It's no wonder that the first thing that Peter and John do is pray. First, we're pretty confident they prayed for the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit, but it didn't happen. And I believe that God withheld the Holy Spirit because he wanted Peter and John to do what they did in verse 17. Lay hands and pray. Now, again, can you imagine that situation? Can you imagine being a member of a people group, hating that whole, your friends, your family, all hated and felt hate for this other people group? And then feeling prayed for. And being used to hurling curses and hate words of hate across these boundaries and to hear prayers of love. Being used to closed hands of anger and feeling open hands of, of prayer. Can you imagine how healing that was? Wondering, are we accepted? Are we a part of this church? For, for, for decades, for centuries, these, these people groups were, were divided. They, were both con, they both considered themselves Jews, but not, neither one of them welcomed each other. Now, here, they're supposed to belong to a church? The church? 
how are they supposed to feel welcome without this? And so God, in his sovereign plan, his amazing plan, he builds his connection through Peter and John, through laying on of hands. Because God grows his church through prayer. And I'm sure that that prayer that Peter and John prayed was not only healing for the Samaritans, but it was also humbling for John. Can you imagine? I can only imagine that it was in the back of his head like, wow, God, these people, you're using me to reach these people. Are you sure about that? <laughs> Thank you, God. And if he felt hesitation, <laughs> he better have been praying for change. And when he saw the Holy Spirit fall on them, like, okay, God. Well, if you still don't believe me, I've got more. So uh, if you want to skip to Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Saul, who is more widely known as post-converted named Paul, the story we have here in Paul's, Saul's conversion, we often usually only look at the Damascus Road experience, maybe what's given to us in Acts. But I want to make, give the whole context here. So first, Saul, not a friend of the church. Okay. To cover up to this point, in Acts 3, we're working backwards. You see that Saul is described as destroying the church. Uh, the word that is used here in the Greek uh, is also used in Psalm 80, 13, and uh, as he's, a, he's being described as a wild boar, devastating a garden. That's the kind of the context, the devastation that he's producing here. And even in Galatians 1, 13, Paul confesses, Again, I'm sorry if I keep switching Paul and Saul. I just know they're the same person. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I tensely, intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. Again, working backwards, you see in Acts 7 that he was sanctioning the stoning of Stephen. And we typically just stop there. We, we see this Saul show up and he's bad and he gets converted. Praise be to God. But theologians speculate there's way more to this, to this story of Saul than, than we often give credit. Because Saul was a Pharisee, a, a leader in the very community that Jesus, that was, uh, that was, that Jesus was delivering his messages to. He was a member of the group that sought out and succeeded in killing Jesus. 
Saul was also about the same age as Jesus and likely a young teacher from Galilee and a young Pharisee from Tarsus would have interacted. And if you, if you want to deny that, surely Saul would have heard of Jesus' ministry and the rumors, quote-unquote, of Jesus' resurrection. And I bring this up because Saul brings it up himself in Acts 26, 14. We all fell to the ground and heard the voice speaking to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Saul, if he was just converted miraculously in one event, this, this goaded term comes out of left field. There seems to be some more history here than just this one event. So what I'm proposing for you to consider this morning is that for years, not just this one event, for years, Jesus was working on Saul. And Saul kept denying him. For years, he heard the stories and signs and wonders, and Saul kept denying Jesus. This might explain that why he was such a wild boar against the church. He wasn't running to the church to destroy it. He was actually running from the church. And in acts of desperation, he was trying to kill the very thing that was chasing him. And after Jesus finally breaks through to him on the Damascus Road, blind, left only to his thoughts, quite possibly digging deeper into his guilt and shame by relieving all the things he had done to the church throughout his life. I mean, it's no wonder he wasn't eating or drinking. He was probably punishing himself. Knowing he doesn't deserve anything but hands of wrath from God. Scornful words Justified, albeit scornful words. Instead, and we read in Acts 9.17, Saul instead receives hands of prayer from Ananias and hears the words, Brother Saul. Acts 9, 17, Ananias went and entered the house and placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if God were only concerned about connecting to him vertically again, he did it. He believed but could you imagine how hard it would have been for him to feel like he belonged to the church if God hadn't sent Ananias? If God didn't send Ananias to say these beautiful words that he did not deserve, these words of love and acceptance, Brother Saul. Because God grows his church through prayer.
And it's no wonder, if you, with all that backstory and all this context and seeing what happens to Saul, it's no wonder that over and over in, in Paul's epistles, what does he greet the church with? Grace and peace. It isn't just a condensed version of the gospel, which it is. It's, these aren't just empty words for him. These are the very thing, things that he, he himself experienced. When he did not deserve love and acceptance, what did he receive? Love and acceptance. When he was still had his hands clenched on this decree that he received, these letter, the letter of authorization to go and capture, chase down, capture other believers of the way, and drag them back to Jerusalem, he received open hands of prayer, love and acceptance. Not only did he receive grace, he received peace. Now often we think of peace in terms of what we see or don't see on the news. When one country is pitted against another, here it's a much more spiritual sense. Typically, the purpose of war is to to battle your opponent until they submit or they're destroyed. And here we see a God who could have very easily done that for Saul. Instead, he graciously reaches over that boundary and provides peace to his enemy. And he does more than just stop the conflict. God is, is, more, is way more interested in relationship than just stop fighting. He wants a family, he, and he provides this through adoption. And I'm not just coming up with this. Paul says it himself. Colossians 1, 1 through 2, Paul, an epistle of Christ... Jesus, by God's will, not his own, <laughs> and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, of, in, saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from our God and Father. This is how God grows his church. While we were yet sinners, enemies of God, God does not beat us into submission he ultimately grows us into brothers and sisters. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't deserve to belong to a church, welcome to the club. We meet every Sunday at 10. None of us belong here, deserve to belong here. None of us have done anything even remotely deserving to belong to God and to one another. 
But how gracious is God? How gracious is he that before we have done anything, he does it himself. And if you are struggling to feel that, if you're struggling, if you're here this morning and you feel like you don't belong, if you're struggling to feel like you do belong, let us pray with you. Later there will be people in the back that will be, would love to pray with you. Maybe this morning you've belonged to the church for a while and you struggle with feeling like you belong. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Let us pray with you. Because let's be honest, we need others to pray for us. We need to realize that even when we're acting like a wild boar, that we're still welcome. And my hope and prayer for you this morning is that even if you're anxious in that feeling of belonging, have you given us a try? Have you, have you allowed yourself, have you prayed for God to help you feel that belonging, to help you not look across and see faces that you don't know and faces of possibly uncomfortable conversations and people that may reject you And see, help, ask for help to see brothers and sisters. Because, brothers and sisters, I just allow me to be personal for a minute. Again, if you Google anxious uh, attachment, theory. I nerd out on this stuff, so please forgive me. But one of the things that is there, and this is supported by all kinds of studies and research, and I've experienced it myself, is one of the categories is anxious attachment. And what's supposed to happen, and what often fails to happen, is that when a, when a child cries out for help, it's not reliably responded to. And what's supposed to happen is when a child cries out, it's responded to, and they can have confidence that every time they express something, something is going to happen that's going to be good for them. And it helps them feel secure. That's why a child who is anxious when a Mom or dad leaves, they, they lose it. Are you going to come back? You came back. Okay, everything's fine. Go out of the room, it happens all over again. You know I'm in the other room. Do, well, 
They're testing. It's part of their growing. It's part of the development. But if that doesn't happen, it can have a long-lasting effect on their lives. And what I struggle with, maybe this is you too, is that you're anxious that that's not going to happen. Hey, I need help. Crickets. Hey, I'm sad. Oh, that sucks. Suck it up. Suffer in silence. And so what I'm asking you here is we're all human. We will all fail you at some point. But give us a chance. Reach out and, guys, I need prayer. This is happening in my life. And we respond prayerfully well. Not just prayer for for you, but prayer for us that we would respond in the right posture. Because we have our histories like John. You know what? I didn't like you two weeks ago. (laughs) I'm praying for you now. Lord, help me. Help them. All right, we will fail you, but please give us a chance. Because I am convinced the more I study this attachment theory and, and I, I nerd out on counseling stuff, the church is such a place for healing. All the things that we lack from our parents and our family, the church offers. When there is no reliable rhythm at home growing up, what does God and his his plan provide? Every Sunday we gather and we worship and we read his word. He provides the structure. When we show up, you know what to expect. You can have confidence that what's going to happen week to week to week. I know when I show up to to church on Sunday, many of the faces that I'm going to see and how soothing that is. That some of these people have seen the worst parts of me and they still show up. And they still look at me and still say, Brother Gus, No matter how many times I didn't receive that in my past, I receive it here. And how often I've had to pray for myself to do that for others. Went off a little script. I went off script a little bit, so... (laughs) So what I want to encourage you this morning is that 
just like John, just like Ananias, I want to encourage you to pray. To go where it's uncomfortable and pray. One thing that I want to highlight here is that they did not pray from Jerusalem. They got up and went and prayed. We should always be praying. But please don't use that as an alternative to going. Little else changes the environment of a hopeless hospital room than laying on hands and pray. Little else is as healing as going to somebody's house in time of crisis and feeling the warm hands of love and prayer. Little else is as connection building when you extend yourself into those uncomfortable areas to those people that you would be justified in not responding to and praying for them. So please, as a church, don't let that be us. Be willing to go to those uncomfortable places to pray. Because God curses church through prayer. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we have, we all have people in our lives that, that have hurt us and we've hurt them. There are people that it would be completely understandable to not go there. by either what we've done to them or what's been done to us, that they don't deserve our prayers. We don't have to go there. Lord, help us. Help us as a church to be known to shine a light in that darkness. Help us to be known to go to those uncomfortable places. Those untouchable people that everybody else wants to be done away with. That we would be a church that reaches out hands of love to accept brothers and sisters. Because we ourselves while we were yet sinners, 
received your grace and peace. So Lord, we thank you for everything that you've already done in our lives and in this church, and we praise you for everything you're gonna do in our lives and church. I pray that you would give us the humility and confidence to go forth and proudly proclaim your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from City Church, located in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We hope God meets you where you are and doesn't leave you, but changes you through the work of his son. For additional information, please visit citychurchpa.org.